0: Welcome to ArcaSpeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture.
1: Shall we get into the the meat of the show here? Uh, So I I was taking notes. So at first I started, you know, taking them on my phone. And then I was like, eh, let me me go and just like watch it from start to finish to kind of like get the whole breadth of it. So, I, I grabbed an, my lo, one of my notepads and I used like the long, like, oh, porter yeah. type reporter notepads one. that I, yeah. Your field notes. My field notes ones, shameless plug. Just got not some a sponsor. Of, uh, not a sponsor. But hey. I should get them as a sponsor because, yeah. you know. <laughs> but anyway, so I grabbed, you know, the notebook and it only had like one page was actually written in it. And I was looking at it and looking at the notes. Looks like it I just started. Construction administration for my uh, Duke University project. And now, how long have you been on it now? Um, well, so that was two plus years ago. Do you write the dates in these things? No, okay. I didn't write them in this one. This one was just you know straight notes from like probably a uh, a phone call that I had.
0: Okay, so two years um,
1: later. So two years later, but last week our client had reached out to us. I think I've talked about it being Hopkins. So so they reached out to us and they were asking us to just start taking an analysis of what the post-COVID world looks like as an effect on the program, you know, the program spaces within the building we're designing. And so, you know, I'm thinking about here we are, we're going to all be required in the future to start thinking about post-COVID world effects on the built environment, And what was interesting is when I grabbed this notebook to write into it for what you and I are going to talk about today, I'm looking at the notes of what I was talking about two plus years ago on the the Duke project. But what I was talking about was how active shooter in the active shooter mentality of like, you know, how do we protect people against this, what seems to be a national fear of active shooters coming into our buildings. How do we protect the people in that building from this particular fear? What I was kind of thinking and and what was interesting about it is like, how are all of these like events in our human history, the pandemic, active shooter, all these different security type issues in their direct effect on the built environment, both the overall layout, the access control, um, what type of hardware, you know, what type of like overrides, you know, that you have in these things to like shut the lock off to make sure that, you know, you can like shelter in place in a room and close it down and, you know, basically like not have the person on the, you know, the, the bad guy on the other side of the wall, all of these different things. And, you know, now we're talking about, could this be, you know, touchless everything? and Could this be the end of the open office? And you know, and all these different other like things that are like directly affecting us. And then, you know, they said that protection starts, especially, you know, in our current situation with with COVID and post-COVID world is protection starts from the front door. Mm -hmm. Then talk about the whole procession all the way through to your space. And how do you protect that person as you get to that that thing? And then you overlay the other concerns that someone we would have, which because we had already talked about like active shooter policies and things like that. So you're just like totally like stacking more and more of like, you know, fears on top of how we respond to the built environment. And it's just, I, I only chuckle so that I don't go mad over <laughs> what humanity has done yeah. to, to one another, to, to basically force architects to think about not just creating beautiful spaces, beautiful spaces that we can completely protect ourselves from other people who want to experience beautiful places.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I I, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, if you go to Europe, they, they don't have handrails everywhere and they don't they don't, they don't try to protect everybody from themselves. And I feel like we really do try to do that in the U S we try to protect everybody from every possible thing that could go wrong. It happens every time you design a building. Well, what if this happens? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? What, what if, what if, what if, and it's like, how how far can you actually go? I mean, b- basically, what you're talking about is building bunkers at some point that are all on flat
1: ground, never go up an extra story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> building single story concrete bunkers mm-hmm. that are wrapped in bubble wrap and with extra padding. And <laughs> because
0: you know, yeah, we it is go we're, we are all going a little
1: crazy. Yeah, and you know the thing about it is is it goes back to thinking about you know we we had talked about kind of the the thought or the concept of the master builder and how the architect was the master builder and, and the evolution from going away from that mostly had to do with litigation. It's like, how do I start to separate myself from all of these potential litigation problems? So now if I'm out there as the master builder and something goes wrong with the design, they blame me if something goes wrong with the construction. They blame me if they if something goes wrong with the electrical. You know they blame me, and so you know all of these different things come back to blaming that one sole person. And so now they're like, okay, so how do I defend myself? So all I am now on the hook for is the design. And then and now me... we
0: can find a thing to blame you about.
1: <laughs> exactly, and so <laughs> I don't want to design know, this, man.
0: Let somebody else
1: design it. Exactly, we're going to run from you
0: know, responsibility as well,
1: right? And and so you know, we're just you have the algorithm so design it, so you can blame that, right? And I would say that's the way that the American architect has kind of evolved. Is you know, I I always jokingly refer to Construction Administration or CA, yeah. as missing missing one letter, yeah. in the y. the y. it's the Y, because <laughs> it always ends up becoming a CYA, yes. not a CA, right? Because you're just you're saying, oh, for everyone involved, exactly. It's all these RFI's, all these ASIs, all these change orders, all these other Create things Create that paper trail so that we can blame exactly. somebody. yeah. Because at the end of the day, if somebody comes, if the owner comes back and they says, you know, hey, we we need to sue somebody because this didn't do that, mm-hmm. and the documents and everything else said that it was going to do that, but it doesn't do that. Who do I sue? Right. The collaboration, you know, we always talk about the collaboration and how wonderful the collaboration process can be, and you know, fully integrating everything. It always stops at bid. Yeah. <laughs> and then from that well, point on, it's never it's
0: everyone for themselves. It's a low trust environment for sure. And think about yes. what it could be. That to me is the the thing. It's you, you've you've heard about it. You've probably watched yeah. it in a movie where there is a high trust environment, and and you could imagine what that might be like and how different that would be.
1: Right. If you are not good at documenting everything and I mean everything that leads up to the point where trust stops mm-hmm. and then it's everyone for themselves, then that why comes into place into play even more so. It's a big why <laughs> big
0: That's ass why a big why
1: <laughs> in both spellings, yes, but yeah, so that thought process. I started thinking about that when I grabbed this notebook and I was just like, huh. <laughs> that's what I was thinking about back then. Took us on a little tangent there. It, and it's almost like I I may not be thinking about that specific issue and how it affects the architecture, it's another version but of I'm it. now I'm thinking of a different version yeah. of what, you know, what outside forces are going to affect that architecture. Right. And, you know, it's just so ow. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, so um what are we talking about today, man? Concrete bunkers. <laughs> concrete bunkers. Single story concrete
0: bunkers. I think you actually had a bunker in one of your uh past episodes of Gift
1: Ideas for Architects. I did. I did. Think it did. It. It's it's funny that, you know, the the jokes that I always make to kinda of like make light of things just because it it's truth. Helps maintain my sanity. <laughs> always up. comes back to say, uh huh, told you so. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's let's actually ro- move on from the bunkers. Jeez. Yes, let's. You, <laughs> that was your fault. <laughs> that was my fault. That was your fault. That was my fault. All right. I'm just trying to emphasize my why. <laughs> oh, man. All
0: right, so uh, we talked about watching Abstract, the Art of Design, the show on Netflix, uh, series, season two, episode one which is yes. Olafur Eliasson, and the episode is called The Design of Art. And I love what he – I imagine that he actually titled this. Maybe maybe it's the clever Netflix crew that produced it, um, because I think this actually is not only a Netflix original, but they actually made this documentary series as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they did. So, so it's called Abstract, the Art of Design, and this episode is called The Design of Art. And I kind of feel like he – I mean, obviously, the, this is a, a design-heavy – episode, which most of them are, but he really goes behind the scenes and you kind of watch how he has deconstructs every how he deconstructs everything. Even even the title of this thing, right? Like he, he looks
1: at it differently. Yeah. He just moved yeah. the words around and is like, well what if you look at it like this? Yes. So I, I'll tell you that I'm kinda glad that when I started watching it, I had stopped watching it and then came back to it because I was having trouble getting past the voiceover narration in the opening credits where they basically kept talking about, it was so to me, it was so very off putting because it was this presentation of an artist with such a very pompous kind of attitude towards, you know, this higher expression of art and everything else. And, and, and maybe I'm, way too cynical in the world. And, and so when I, you know, they're like, this is the artist, you know, who is touching art and, you know, in, in the greatest global scale and all these other things and and, and how it was like, kind of like building him up, building him up, building him up. And I always look at things as like, you know, the more you build something up, the easier it is to fail, disappoint. and easier it is to like, you know, disappoint. Yeah. And so when I kind of hyper-focused on, the the opening credits and listening to the voiceovers of different people throughout the episode that, you know, then kind of come on and just like, oh, you said that. Oh, you said that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, from the very beginning, I kind of went into it looking like that. And so I was kind of picture me with my arms crossed like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you were ready show for the me, disappointment, right? You're know, like, you know, like show me. Right. And so, and so I was a little like, you believe this crap kind of, like, attitude, and, and so I got into it for a few, and there was, you know, and I was, I I appreciated what he was doing, but I had kind of a, somewhat of a negative taste in my mouth, and so I, I'm glad I stopped, and we went for a walk. Did a little reset. And I, I actually crashed out, went to sleep, woke up early this morning, kind of started the whole thing over, and I'm glad I did, because I sort of fast-forwarded past that point. Mm-hmm. And didn't have that kind of like resetting that kind of impression that I had about the art and the artist mm-hmm. and got rid of all of that and then just watched the actual body of the episode. Mm. And it was so much better without that to intro. me <laughs> without the intro, because it set me up to just watch and listen and experience what he's trying to tell us both in the episode and in the art. Mm-hmm. And it was so much better. And I was so much. I was. I was very glad about it. And then the the thing that I could see about it was is the art. Now we, we can we'll get into it a little bit more as we you know talk about the episode. But the art itself, you can kind of see the correlations and the interconnectedness with architecture mm-hmm. and and how we view architecture and how we look at architecture mm-hmm. and everything that he was saying about how he wants the user we call it users you know spectators um, he calls it yeah they they call he calls them spectators mm-hmm. that as you know kind of opens up it's just like they're the co-author they're the main protagonist of the ex- of the experience right. and that's sort of how we design i mean we we always go into buildings thinking about designing buildings not for just us i mean yes we we kind of go into it sometimes single-mindedly it's just like ooh this will be really nice ooh this will be really nice But we always hope that somebody else will, you know, have that same, ooh, this is really nice. What were they thinking? This is great. But we always know that there is never going to be one similar feeling from user to user to user or participant or what do you call it again? Spectator. Spectator. From spectator to spectator to spectator, you're never going to experience it the same. There is going to be just a slight variation, a slight difference, a slight experience that only you are going to have. And as I got past all of the narration and started to look at like the, what he was talking about and the experiences he was trying to create within his immersive art. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, okay, I get it Mm -hmm. now. I love this. And I had seen his work at the Hirshhorn Mm -hmm. and I think I might've taken a slightly more dismissive approach to it based off of like this over narration that it it just doesn't seem to matter that you know museum to museum to museum people try to over narrate the work mm-hmm. and he he made this quote of we make our own reality and I likened it to you know beauty is in the eye of the beholder mm-hmm. because everybody like this will go back to the earlier statement is like everybody's going to experience it differently. Mm-hmm. And so however your experience is, is not going to, like if you and I walked into the same space, we may have similar experiences because, you know, we come from like mind in our profession, mm-hmm. but it is going to affect us differently. Mm-hmm. We are going to perceive it differently and we are going to enjoy it or dislike it differently. And, and that was the thing that I really, really liked about the episode was that the whole thing, and I kept repeating it over and over again. Every time I made notes was individual experience. There are greater ideas in all of his artwork, but the individual experience and how that particular space is shaped by his vision. But then he's like, okay, I'm going to put this in the world, but I know that this is just a singular focus and that the power of this is not going to be just my view. It is going to be everybody else's view and how they experience. And so, you know, if we say there's 6 billion plus people on this planet and they all go and they look at this, you are going to have six, six billion different impressions of that one piece, not just from the creator, but from every experience after that. He's obsessed
0: with that. Yes. And that to me is what really sets him apart from, and that's what makes this episode so interesting to me and how it, how it is architecture like, I don't think architects yes. are that obsessed with what people's experiences are. I obviously generalizing there. But that to me is like he agonizes over it. And I think a lot of times he gets kind of lucky, right? Where like he gets the space with with the trusses and he puts the light up there and he's like, "Oh, well, <laughs> well now what yeah. if we do this?" And now what if we add yeah. sound? And now what and now what if we bring in these people who kind of inspire others to to move in a certain way and and see what that looks like. Like all of that to me is like he he's doing what we do. He's designing an experience, but he right. is obsessed right. with the individual's experience that they get from that, right. and and all right. of the different kind of branches off of what he's doing. He he kind of explores many of them, and and I think what was so we don't do this enough as architects, and maybe it's just easier for him because it's a it's a gallery showing and and whatnot, and he can go and just observe what mm-hmm. people are experiencing. And I don't think we do that enough in the stuff that we create because I'm sure he takes that to the next one and to the next one yeah. and builds yeah. upon that kind of... It's a it's a beautiful way to make the work more impactful and influential over time is to see how people respond in real time, try to understand that as much as you can and apply it to what's next. Or what's what, what are the other things in the works right then that he can apply that to?
1: I look back at a project that we did in architecture school, I think it might have been second year, and our job was, our our assignment was to make people aware of the built environment. Make people aware of things that they take for granted. Well, let me just say that what I'm, how I'm explaining it is how I viewed the assignment. So not necessarily sure that everybody took the assignment the same way I did, and it was kind of funny as I, I, my intervention sort of got me in trouble on campus because of, of what I did, but, you know, it was basically to make people aware of their surroundings. And so, you know, there was a variety of different things, you know, uh, there was like these overpasses of different, like little connector bridges between, you know, a couple of different buildings that people would like put stuff up on the, the underside of it. And they, people would look up and it's like, Ooh, this is cool and stuff. Well, I, I did a little bit more of a kind of a, an aggressive approach where I was just like, what, it, you know, what is the one thing that people take for granted all the time? And if you take it away from them, how are they going to react? What are they going to feel? And, 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 you know, what is the, this outcome? And so what was interesting about it is, so we've got in between the architecture building and this, you know, the, the music building and um, the theater building, which are, you know, kind of adjoined in somewhat same architectural language on campus, which is very different from the bulk of the campus, which is a little bit more traditional. And these were brick buildings, but they were big brick boxes with, you know, thin cutouts and, you know, things like that. And so we had this really wide set of stairs that connected the dorms and the, the music building and stuff to like the major, you know, we we our building was sort of the portal from... Kind of like the the just off campus to main camp main body of campus, and so you had thousands of people walking through there a day, and so I you know so we had this you know really wide stair probably about you know twenty twenty feet twenty five feet wide. I necked I built something that necked the stair down to a single person, Mm-mm. and then I also made sure that because it was there was opportunities to kind of like go around it and stuff like that. I kind of closed off all of those opportunities and forced people to go down this and the anger that people had because I took away their common kind of just something that they do every day Mm -hmm. and that they're never aware of it. And I took it away from them and made them so hyper aware of the convenience that this one set of stairs gave them every day. That they just never thought of so. You, and I, you were the COVID nineteen of of your class. <laughs> it was thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's just hurtful. Um But yes, took away I, my, I my daily pleasures. <laughs> I took away their daily pleasures, and, but I made them aware that these stairs and and then so I I kind of kept running the experiment a little bit more after. So before I kind of just like watched them kind of come through and I documented it and I wrote it down and that was part of like the early analysis of the project and then I designed something around it like I said to neck it all down to just a single thing and then to watch people try to force their two people walking up and down the stairs at the same time which just wasn't possible so you'd have to force somebody to back up and either like back down the stairs or back to up the negotiate. stairs and they had to negotiate who was actually going to no you go ahead no right, you go ahead right. kind of thing <laughs> I'm nicer and than- then <laughs> ex- and then afterwards I I kind of kept watching it after that after I took it out because it lasted I mean I I put it I specifically put it up through the most the the busiest time of the day which you know of course is what is going to you know. I knew when it was gonna almost be empty and I knew when it was gonna be at its height of traffic. And in like the most least occupied time I put it up. And people were like, What's this? I'm like, eh, it's just a, a quick installation. Um and they're like, oh interesting. You know, and then just kept moving on. And so then I, I put it up, watched the anger level go from, oh, this is really interesting to I'm gonna kill whoever did this. Yeah. And so I kinda of did like this little after action review. And people were just like, "Did you see that shit that was put up yesterday?" I mean, God, that pissed me off. I was like, I was trying to get to a class and I was late. For yeah, class I to say stuff. you probably made people late. <laughs> and, and and I was just nice. like, "Well, that's." I was like, in a way, that was kind of my point. Is I just wanted. I was like, "How do you make people hyper aware of their surroundings?" Of the most common thing that they use, yeah. that they pay attention to the Take least. Take away the conveniences. Yeah. Take away the conveniences. Yeah. I'd actually told them that I was like planning on um, closing off doors and stuff like that, too. And they're like, oh, thank goodness you didn't do that. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know which one was better. You know, me pissing off a couple thousand people trying to traverse through this one thing. And I think it was only up like maybe an hour, hour and a half before people started to destroy it. And so it was destroyed. You know, I didn't really have to take it down because people took it down. It was it was storming the state capital kind of approach that they did.
0: Well, I, I think what's You took away my freedom. I think what's so interesting about Eliason's approach is that you know he talks about early on just, just how color influences people, right? And he he uh, says yes. I love how he just says, enjoy the yellow, right? He puts the yellow on, <laughs> enjoy the yellow. And he he talks about how how the color influences us, but big picture, that's what art is all about is influencing. Yeah. And then later he goes on to talk about how there is no art without people experiencing it. So uh, he talked about that first rainbow installation that he did with the misting water in the room, and, right, and it doesn't right. exist without the eye in the room. Yep. But I think what this what this kind of made me think of was, and I've been hearing this from some other stuff that I'm listening to. Derek Sivers has a podcast. He's got a book. He's I love listening to to his stuff. But he's he's been publishing on his podcast interviews that he's been doing on other podcasts because he doesn't have his own. I mean, he does, but it's very short. It's like one minute long. <laughs> he was doing it like every day for a minute. So now he's posted more long form interviews that he's done on other people's podcasts. And, I, and I've heard him repeat this a couple times. And I think it plays in here, which is, you know, people say, ask him, how, how do you have so much influence? And, and I think that is one of the most important leadership traits you can have is influence and not, it's not obvious how to do it. And I think, so I'm looking for insight into that because I think it's that important. And And what he says is if you really want to connect with people, you have to surprise them. It is that. It is that. You have to boil it down to surprising them. So if you're giving a presentation, you can probably cut out 90% of it because you want to just talk about the thing that surprises them. If you want to do a lunch and learn that people are actually interested in, just surprise people with something. You have to be able to do that if you really want to get their attention and ultimately influence them. And I think that's what happens here because they talk about how you go into one of his shows and first you say, wow, right? Usually that's a scale thing or it's, you know, he's, he's dialed it down so that it's such a simple idea, which we talked about maybe in the last episode with Elwood, right? Which is so difficult to do. Simple is hard. Right. But he says you go from wow to aha, Mm-hmm. and that is yeah. that surprise that is that moment of of impact that it has on you and that's what makes it a memorable experience to have and i think that also plays into architecture right if you can somehow it's not just about function it's not just about flow it's not just about security it's not just about color it's not just it's it's all of this all of these things that can ultimately hopefully impact you in a positive way So that you do pay attention to the built environment so that it can make your life better. And you can only do that if you can surprise people in some, I don't know, you know, you want to say clever, but it doesn't necessarily have to be clever, but because not every building needs to be clever, right? If it were, that would, that might be a little maddening. So, so you need punches of surprise. And I think that to me is what as designers, we kind of strive for, and it is hard to pull off. And I don't even know that we fully get to experience it because we don't go do these after action reviews where you're just
1: watching people. Right. I'm, I'm glad he kind of brought that up because I was kind of drawn to that, the monochromatic light one as well, you know, and talking about the, you know, how he kind of fought the, the museum director. Oh yeah. Play, with the Rose, you know, with the it's Rose. Not it's not a show like, about the Rose. You've put, he, goes, <laughs> it, he goes, you will change the intent of of the show. Mm -hmm. And he was just, he wanted to talk about the space and then he wanted to talk about your experience and your perception of the space, but then also of you. He wants you to look at
0: at yourself. And how are you going to do that? If there's something else in the room that is trying to get your attention.
1: And, And what I found is interesting is because if you think about it, if you're like, you know, meandering through that particular gallery and then you see these probably, you know, dark black curtains that you're supposed to pass through. And then you've got this one moment, this one special kind of thing as you were talking about. And we can't like, especially like, you know, with us doing public works type projects, you gotta be good stewards of the budget. And they, they don't have a big budget. And so a lot of times we do, you know, dumb down buildings, but what we're always looking for is where those moments that we can express something that will make this building feel far more special than just a series of CMU walls. You know, what, what is that one thing? And and so that was one of the things that we like flourished, especially when I was down in Florida and I was working with, you know, the firm that I worked with down there, we, we had a very limited budget. We knew that the budget itself was going to be stretched just based off of the programmatic elements that they were asking for. But you know, if you just do that, you're just going to have a dumb building that there's really not going to be an experience other than the activity you're doing. And there's no actual experience of the space itself. And so you you almost say, okay, how do I look at the space themselves and, and where are those opportunities to like really take them out of just being in a rec center mm-hmm. and making them being in a place that is a lot more than just that Mm-hmm. That function. And that was what we kind of found fun and kind of exciting about all of the those particular projects that were so budget sensitive that you can still do good architecture. You can still do good planning of spaces with almost zero money and also try to find those opportunities to really make special moments. Well, look what he's doing in his
0: installations. It it is that. They they're not yeah. expensive. It's it's about the space and it's about your experience within it. And he's doing that exactly. with light. <laughs> he's not doing that with objects. He's not doing it with views of of the outside. Like a lot of times these are very introverted spaces.
1: Yeah, yeah. Think about the 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 sphere project that he did in for that LA gallery and mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you look at like the actual piece that he put in there, I mean, they're beautiful, beautifully Perfectly crafted, crafted and, thing. and things like that. And, you know, I, I'd love to have them hanging in my house. Um, wouldn't, look bigger, huh? <laughs> wouldn't look as good. get a bigger Wouldn't look as good. With oh, all the crap. Thanks. With all the crap on their. <laughs> that hurt. He just busted on my house. My, I'm in the same boat. Save that for I'm me. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so, but. It was, it was the, the experience of the space. I mean, you almost really didn't actually pay attention to the, the art piece itself. It was how did that art piece change the space and how do you experience the art piece and the change in the space? And, and those were the intents of the things. And I think those is, you know, we were talking about is are how you perceive the space much differently and how, As architects, we can look at things like that and look at the different perceptions. I I kept writing down on numerous occasions: perception and spatial awareness and individual experience Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. And we tend to
0: bucketize that kind of stuff and say everybody's going
1: to experience it like this. Everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's so not true. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I I loved how you know he he was talking specifically about. How like they do these like these massive write-ups? They're like this is what you should be yeah. looking at and experiencing <laughs> when you when you go and you look at this particular piece. Yeah. Over he goes. It. They so over they so over explain it. And he goes, I want to do away with that, and I want to co-produce the narrative with you. Yeah. You're the one who is actually looking at this. You're the one who's in there. So I'm going to give you my narrative, but I, my narrative is not going to be your narrative, right? And so I want you to co-produce it. And want, want, even if we never sit down and talk about what that space did to you and what you experienced and felt in that space, I, I want you to have a completely unique experience. Well, it's your experience. It's
0: very respectful of the individual. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it Absolutely. It is not dumbing it down and saying it needs to be explained because you're stupid. It it's saying right. no. You're an intelligent person. You tell me what what you got out of it, and I think that's. That's true of a lot of art, right? That's true of a lot of music, which is also art, but you know, it's like, well, what does it mean to you? You'll hear a lot of artists say that. Well, explain, yeah. what's the meaning of that song? It's like, well, what does it mean to you? Because for right. me, it's, it's one thing, but for you, it might be something else. And I like hearing about those different things that you take away from this thing that I wrote that is a different interpretation of it. And I think that that is what makes art so interesting. And I think that is what can make architecture is so interesting is these different experiences, different times of day, different quality of light, different, you know, like even at the very end of the episode, when he talks about the, the daylight in the different locations, right? Different places, LA, Berlin, right? He went all over the world with this piece of paper or at least yeah. Netflix. Did. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and showed the different light colors. And that happened, that changes throughout the day. Right. And it changes, it changes yeah. your perception of so many things. Uh, and so people going into a space are going to, with, with not even just natural lighting, are going to experience different things right. at different times throughout the year in um, different individuals. And you, you can see how this kind of spirals into a completely different experience for so many different people, especially if color is influencing us. It influences mood. It influences outlook. It yeah. influences all kinds of things about us, a visual pattern and stimulation and you know, things like that, where you cannot simply say it's going to be like this for everybody. I had
1: started to think about, you know, is there this kind of like spatial awareness that in his particular case is very deliberate. In architecture, a lot of times it's, it's far more subdued. It's either intentional or unintentional, but, you know, we, in good spaces, it is just an unintentional kind of like gift that you get from just a well designed space. And as I was watching that, I was I was starting to think about like say for instance the the courtyard designed by Foster at the Portrait Gallery mm-hmm. in DC mm-hmm. where it is a courtyard that he basically was connecting to existing buildings. But the space that was created was, you know, just a very delicate kind of roof mechanism that was put over the top of it very occupiable space with some very simple water features in it and stuff like that. But the, that particular space feels completely different than the, the very traditional spaces and galleries that you're connected to when you walk out of the portrait gallery, because the portrait gallery is, you know, a very old classical building that um, beautiful building in its own right. But because you have that, and then you have this like very, beautifully detailed, like delicate structural element that caps over these buildings and creates just this other space, the moment is created by light. The moment is created, you know, that, that spatial awareness in that one is, is kind of like this aural kind of like how the water plays and how people like, you know, interact with the water. I mean, you have kids who like stomping through there and you've got all of these sounds that kind of resonate through the thing. Then you've got like these low murmurs of conversations because it's this big volume of space. And then you have like the, the ever shifting changing of light and how the interplay of the light on the old classical, you know, facade kind of changes from moment to moment to moment. And if you just sit there long enough to appreciate not only just the space itself that, you know, kind of gives you a very nice respite from walking around museums that you sort of need to sit down sometimes because you're doing a lot of standing or at least me. Um, and that you need to sit down every once in a great while, but like these little spaces that are created that are just the, and and I'm sure they spent a lot of money on, on this if that's kind of not the point I was getting at, but what you get out of the money that you spent is just this absolutely beautiful experience. That is this kind of compromise between architecture and nature and humanity and just light and everything just kind of interplays beautifully together. And, and in a way, I mean, I'm I'm hoping, and I'm pretty sure that Sir Norman Foster thought that when he was creating the space. But even if he wasn't, then I mean, it's such a beautiful, unintended or intended thing, whatever you want to call it. He's done something there that
0: is a very simple kind of intervention, right? It's from the spectator's point of view. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because it's very much like Eliasson's work where. It's very. It seems minimal, but it has a huge effect. And I can. I've never been to that space, but I can only imagine. It's. It's kind of evolutionary. Like it goes yeah. to our roots of why we like certain things, which is like sitting under a tree in the savannah, right, and the shadow patterns that that puts onto the ground and the rocks around us. I could imagine that being a very, a really core part of our being. It's kind of like putting the fireplace in the middle of a home. It's still the most incredibly inefficient way to heat a home, but there's something about it (laughs) that it it comes from millions of years ago. Right. It's not, they still, we still do it for a reason. And it's because that is home to us. Right. It is, it is safety. It's security. It's, it's heat. It's, it's life. Right. Um, and, and to me, it seems like he took what was already an existing, I assume outdoor space, right. Did this intervention and created something new with, seemingly minimal effort of course it's not minimal but it but for everybody who walks through there they probably take for granted the effort but they don't take for granted the effect of it which to me is very much like Eliasson's work it's what it's a yellow lamp right no exactly it's everything that yeah, yeah, comes yeah. out of that uh, it, it's the effects yes. that that has on you uh, so I think that that's that's incredibly powerful stuff and i think that that's what puts this documentary firmly into the category like citizen architect whereas what the hell am i doing with my life category which i need to start writing all these things down like what are the things that make me think that or feel that and and this this doc this is the third time i've watched it and every time i'm just like i'm blown away by it i'm blown away. i i see something new i learn something new uh, and, and to me, like, I, I'm glad we're having this conversation about it because it and, and you're bringing in these other influences of things that you've experienced that kind of point to the same intrinsic things about being a person in a place that I think that both of these, you know, an architect and an artist and an artist slash architect, right, are kind of right. bringing out of people or showing people that they that those things happen it's it's a big piece of who we are and where we come from. It makes me think of the the Louvre Museum in Abu Dhabi, right? Like it's it's this domed roof with these intricately patterned, interwoven, like stacked pieces. and it, and I'm just trying to pull up some images of it, right real quick because it's it's incredible the kind of play of shade and shadow that you get inside of these spaces. We should probably just put a link to it in the show notes because we don't. I don't want to go down a tangent. But, you know, it's a series of <laughs> volumes in outdoor spaces under this great yeah, roof. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that great roof is all these patterns that are playing against each other to create. Again, I think kind of like that shadow play, it is evolutionary at its core. And I, and I, I think that there's some kind of common thread amongst that kind of a feeling that we get by being in a place. And it's going to be different no matter what moment of the day or what day of the year you're going to go there. Um, for each individual.
1: Totally agree. And, you know, you, you get all these just kind of like little residual effects of spaces that are probably completely unintended, uh, when the architect was designing them. I think about this other, this one space and, you know, I talk about, you know, I, I, I used to always refer to this when we were talking about acoustics and architecture and there is this, um, Florida Southern college in Lakeland, Florida, Done by Frank Lloyd Wright. And so, you know, he's got all of these very kind of like geometric spaces, um, you know, shapes that are, that kind of help form all these different buildings and things like that. And he's got canopies that are, you know, have kind of like cut open skylights. Then it goes to canopy. Then it goes open. And then it goes to the face of the building. And the way that the building is kind of faceted, there are three different experiences, actually more than three different experiences, but there's these. Very just, you're in the same space, but the closer you get to the wall and the further away you get to the wall, the space dynamics, both in sunlight, air quality, as well as like the acoustic quality, all completely change the closer and further away you get to the wall. People used to look at me like, "What? you're you're crazy. What are you talking about? And I'd have to physically take them to the space and say, stand there. Just talk. Yeah. Stand there. Just talk. Now stand there, just talk. What do you see? They're like, whoa, 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 that's weird. You know, and it's just like, "Uh uh-huh, see? And I even found that to be probably an unintended consequence at Falling Water. Mm. We were visiting Falling Water and my son and I are over six feet. And, you know, we're standing in a room and the way that you've got a beam that goes across the room and then the bulkhead drops, it basically starts to picture frame your view out to the river and out to the woods but that effort that he went to to picture frame that there's a point if you stand in one of the bedrooms and overlook that view of the river and that view of the woods that the acoustic change in that it changes the dynamics of that space and the the docent that was in there had no idea that that was like I was like come here come check this out and he's like what and I was like stand here Stand here, stand here, and he's like, "I've never noticed that before." He goes, "I've given tours over the past fifteen years here, and I've never noticed that." And like, and so you know, it's it, you're the I architect like, who
0: walks into spaces and stares at ceilings, just like me.
1: <laughs> I am, I am totally the architect who's like, just oh, observing I everything. I am the one who just wants to see. I am totally spatially aware of all of the different spaces. Sometimes it's a little bit more critical, you know, because I go in there and I'm like, mm, mm. Why? Mm. And then there's others. It's just like, damn, yeah,
0: just, just damn. So what, what did you think about the whole segment on where his ideas come from? You know, he starts, he starts just doodling on the page.
1: I, I kind I of, lo- I loved it because as an artist, he has a very architectural kind of thought process in a way. He, he talks about, here's the idea. Here's where I want the idea to go. Here's this evolution of the idea of how I give words to it. And then once I get to that point, then I start to do modeling. I'm like, well, sh- shit, we do that all it's the time. It's like movies. he was trained as an architect from a very young age, right? His
0: It, it all goes back it, to his father and the artist.
1: Right. And it's just, you know, because the way that his father kind of just like asked him to just doodle. Yes. And just look play. at just play. play. Just have fun. Like, don't expect an outcome. Yep. Just do. But have fun and then get to that. And then once that outcome occurs, you're like, oh, eh, I didn't start I that something. way, yeah. but I ended up there. <laughs> yeah. Now, so, now, we're.
0: He says that, that the good ideas come when he works hard. Right. And that to right. me is is I was just showing like, up. There's, there's a great book on this process, and it's uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And he talks about mm-hmm. turning pro. And being pro simply means you you have to kind of overcome your lizard brain, which your lizard brain is the thing telling you you never do things good enough, fast enough, uh, you know, cheap enough, all those things. And you have to overcome that by showing up every day and practicing. And so if you're – Stephen Pressfield's a writer, so he just you just show up every day and you write. And this totally applies to any kind of artistic endeavor, right, or any – if you want to be a musician and you want to be really good at an instrument, like you just have to play it a lot. It's right, not the Matrix, right. right? You're never going to download that program. And so you can see through his kind of lifetime of doodling where some of these things have come from, but you only get there by doodling, by doing the work. What was um, Stephen Pressfield's uh, book called? There's one called The War of Art. He's written several books. Legends of The Legend of Bagger Vance is probably one of his more more famous hmm. books that he ever wrote. But um but he also has written a bunch of other books just about writing and kind of how he About the process. Yeah. How he does it. Which But yeah, I've read The War of Art. I think I've got it on Kindle. It's it's a really good it's a two thousand two yeah. book. I need to Yeah. He I calls the lizard books brain, books. he calls it the resistance. He's the guy who kind of coined that term of calling this thing that we all kind of innately have, which keeps us from doing things that we dream of doing. And he, he terms, he calls it the resistance and you have to learn how to break through that so that you can get through those creative barriers. Um, He has another book called do the
1: work. So let me ask you this. So, you know, you know, he's talking about the, his process and he kind of like talks about, you know, like here's kind of like this initial concept and here's kind of, I think what might be the, you know, intended outcome, but it's really, it's that journey between the two to really know whether or not that, you know, kind of like intended outcome, the words that go with that, that solution are really kind of vetted through all of these explorations and and just kind of like this ability to kind of like just play and be, go with the flow and be a little bit spontaneous with things like that. You've
0: got to have an environment and a mindset
1: that enable that to happen or that allow it and and that's actually where I was going. Is do you feel like that is something that is completely foreign to architecture? Because no, that's know, what we the studio is. Such constraints.
0: That's what design studio has always been. Right. I think. I think right. it becomes in the in a corporate environment, it is harder to make that happen. Or you know, and and that's again generalizing. I, there's no way to cover all the bases here because there's lots of studios that where you are completely free to play, and there are it's a safe environment to do that, right? You're not, there's no one sitting there over your shoulder saying the client will never go for that. Right. And, and I think this is one of those, I've talked about it before on the show when I think it was a YouTube video that Bjarke Ingalls did. And he just talked about how, you know, they did this ski slope on top of a recycling facility that blows smoke rings in a country that where there's no Hills Mm -hmm. and it's a totally absurd idea, but that absurd idea would have never come out if they didn't have a safe place where absurd ideas are. Okay. Right, exactly. And and so at the, in the end, people are like, it's fantastic, it's obvious, Why we've always needed this. And it's like, well, you can only say that in hindsight. It, it's really hard to get to that place where an absurd
1: idea can become obvious. Yeah, see, and what's interesting, you know, that you mentioned Bjark was, I guess because he rose to fame relatively quickly, at least in... What we you know see in the architectural world
0: compared to the glacial speed at which architectural yeah.
1: profession adapts yeah <laughs> exactly and so i had a little bit of a cynicism and pessimism kind of directed to him maybe it was more of the you know like the the project manager type brain of 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 mine or at least my current kind of iteration of but you know the good thing about like watching that one abstract that kind of featured him from season one is you know, it kind of took a little bit of the mysticism. It's like he doesn't just do this to do this. I mean, he takes the hard work, he does that serendipitous kind of process and and really actually does all of the legwork for it. And it's not just this, you know, haphazard, let me just throw some shit on the on the wall and see what sticks, kind of thing, and say, Ha ha, art kind of thing. And so, you know, I gained a greater respect for him that i was just like hey he's just not he's he's not a bullshit artist i mean i may not necessarily agree with like the aesthetic outcome of some of the things that he does which you know i mean hell i can guarantee you there's plenty of people who don't agree with the aesthetic outcomes of the mm-hmm. things i do but again that's not you know i mean we don't do them to just hope that somebody's gonna like hey, do you really right. like me because if you do, then you're never going to do anything. I mean, that was that that's was kind of like the whole like, the resistance. resistance. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, is. exactly. It's like my whole resistance to like publishing my art, like just my doodles and sketches and stuff like that. I, I remember early on and when I was a teenager and stuff and, you know, we would do all these art shows and people would be like, oh, please tell me you're going to be putting something in there. And I'm like, nah, you know, And it was because of this resistance of like, what are people going to think about this? And funny enough, I mean, people actually seem to be relatively receptive to like stuff I can create, but I wasn't ready to deal with criticism. Mm-hmm. And so I, I blocked it and i I prevented it from ever happening. And then later on in life I started to like free myself up from that. I'm like, who gives a crap what other people think about what you do? You're just doing it for the fun of doing it and the process of doing it and just the pure enjoyment that you get. Now if somebody enjoys it Great, if they don't scroll on well, yeah, you know yeah. Kind of and thing. actually you don't have to publish it. I think the
0: most important thing is that you're actually doing it. I think if people yeah. are asking yeah. for it because they've seen what you've done that that's an indicator. there is other people's kind of experience to be had from the art that you put into the world, but right, I mean i and i I yeah. publish a lot of crap, but I don't think that
1: everybody needs to well the the great thing that I like you know I mean hell, when we first met you know, some of the things that you were publishing, you know, way back then were your photos and your photos are amazing. And, you know, there's just, a you know, this, this beautiful quality that you capture in your photographs and you don't necessarily do it as much as at least publish as much as you used to, but mm-hmm. you still do. And the thing that I always looked at is like, I want to know his process. If he and I were standing next to each other, which <laughs> there's been many occasions where mm-hmm. we have been, And we're both taking a similar picture. I am absolutely okay with our pictures looking absolutely different. And mine may not be the same as what yours is. And what I find as really amazing about yours, I may not be able to capture. But what it does is it gives me some aspirations of like, okay, learn the craft. Because he's learned the craft. He's put in the work. He actually, it's not like, you know, he just like, as you said, downloaded this, you know, from the matrix and boom, he was able to like, you know, do everything about that. You worked at it and you actually like got to the point where you felt comfortable with like putting your stuff out there just for yourself, but knowing that there's going to be some criticism or inspiration, you know, that will come out of this. And what I always was like, this is a guy I want to know, because this is a guy who puts in the work, And you can see what comes out of that work. You can see the process. You can see that he actually gives a damn about what he's doing and that it shows. Well, first, thank you. (laughs) That was really nice. I (laughs) I think
0: that uh, it's one of those things where I find I don't have a lot of photographers that I aspire to do anything like. Uh, For me, it is one one of the things that is 100% about the process for me and learning how (laughs) photography works and how it's different from any other medium. And how a snapshot of a place in time is the only document of that that exists. I think that's super interesting. Uh, And because because you can't go back and see it again. And I do get definitely caught up in the moment of, should I be here or should I be documenting it? That is a huge struggle for me. And I usually end up on the side of documenting it (laughs) instead of being there then. Which I really struggle with when I'm like on vacation or a trip or somewhere special, uh, because I want to document it, but at the same time I should just be there. Uh, So I struggle with that a lot. But to me, it is all about just like learning from the last time. And now it's really interesting to see my kids, my two boys who are really into photography. They've got cameras, and they my my son who just graduated is out booking shoots, and he's going trying to find interesting places. And what's super interesting about it to me is he does not ask me about it at all. He doesn't ask me how I do anything.
1: He's doing the same thing that I do, which is figuring it yeah. out and doing the work. But the 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 but what the opportunity that you provided for him wasn't like direct tutorials right. not on, at all. ooh, can you show yeah. me how to do this? It was, you shared your joy for documentation. You shared your joy for capturing yeah. those making moments art. of just your own personal experience and making that art. And... But the great thing about like my kids is all of them, they sit around and they doodle all the time. They draw and they sketch and, and, you know, my daughter not only draws and, but she also like makes sculpture and and everything else. And so these are just things that I, I didn't sit down with her and say, and this is how you put a line to the thing. And this is how you like shade and shadow and stuff like that. I mean, everyone's a great while, you know, they might come up and they say, you know, how would you do something like this? How would you do something like that? And I might, you know, say, okay, well you do this, but most of the time they just, they see that I enjoy doing it and that yeah. they do it because they enjoy doing it.
0: It's a lot like my dad and me with, with guitar, right? My dad is an amazing guitar player and I never asked him for a tutorial and he never offered. And it's just one of those things where we both have this love. And it was the, the thing that you just said, it was like he simply provided the opportunity by being the inspiration. That
1: was, right. it's pretty right. interesting. Probably the same thing. I would say that my dad had a lot of health issues when he was still around, but you know, one of the things that he liked to do was take care of his own cars. And yeah, so, same. you know, his just love of love of cars and love of just, you know, doing that, I mean, he didn't sit around and say, you know, hey, I'd like to show you why I love cars and why you should love cars too. No, I learned to drive by literally like looking down oh, at yeah, his feet totally and looking at his hand on the stick shift and all that other stuff and think and playing through all of that yep. in my head. <laughs> the, how do you turn a wrench? What right. is a wrench? What the hell is, you know, a box end? Um, what is, you know, what are all these different things? I mean, what, do, what does it mean to do it, you know? to torque, you know, right. down a bolt and all these, he never taught me any of those things, but I watched him do it. I watched him understand. It. I watched him like actually give a damn about what he was doing. And so I was like, that kind of looks like fun. And, you know, just through kind of sometimes the sheer need of being cheap and having this is like, crap, I do need my oil changed, but I can't afford the twenty nine ninety nine to go and take it over. So I'm going to go out and buy 40 dollars worth of stuff to change (laughs) my own oil
0: it's an investment
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) you know and so you know i just started to do that and hell i mean it got to the point where and just like you i know for a fact just like you that it spawned into just this weird little obsession of actually like doing your own shade tree mechanic
0: This, this brings me back to the the episode where he talked about he uses drawings when there are no words And to me, that's kind of what we're talking about here, where it is, and we talked about this again in the last episode, which was learning through osmosis, or just, you're actually learning by doing. And he talked about using drawings when there are no words. And I worry about that when people can't watch other people draw to communicate, because it is a form, it is a language, it is a form of communication, and it doesn't have to be written, right? It's, It's just an instrument on a page being dragged around by somebody's hand. and right, and then people right. take those drawings because through drawing creates understanding of whatever you're trying to do. and the more you you draw on it kind of the more you understand it up to some point at least. And then his team will take those drawings and then they start to create models where there's again, further understanding of where we're going. And it may not be where we end, but it is it's how we get there. And I think like that whole thing is a really foreign concept for a lot of people. Because they only see finished products. Like everybody goes to his shows and they just see the end. Everybody pulls the iPhone out of their pocket, but they don't see how it was made. Everybody visits our architecture and they don't understand why it is how it is because of all the decisions that had to be synthesized into that thing. When in the beginning, all there was was possibility, right? Right. And exactly. and so I think that's what's so interesting about a show like this and why documentaries in general are so interesting is because you get to you get an eye into the process and you get to see how people do what they do and you get to see the twisty overlapping curvy line of what it takes to get from beginning to end. And there's not even necessarily a time frame associated with that, right? Like like I think a lot of the things that he produces that we produce They've been simmering in the subconscious for decades, potentially. There's elements of the things that we do that are not of the last year or of the last six months or of the last three years. They are of decades, and they are even like we talked about earlier on in this show. They're evolutionary on some level like they're they're not even from us. They're experiences of our ancestors that have just been programmed into our DNA over time. I think like all of that to me is is super intriguing stuff. And and that's why I loved it when he actually went into the whole where do the ideas come from segment. And it's so hard to capture yeah. that into five minutes of a documentary, right? But it starts to allude to these <laughs> types of conversations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, th- I think you and I talked about it even on the, the last episode of like, you know, one of the things that we kind of fear about this potential evolution of the office and the way that Mm -hmm. we work from our current quarantine situation is that serendipitous moment of a couple of people sitting down over a piece of paper and just sketching and then over-sketching and then resketching and just kind of like having that conversational chat because now, you know, I have found that some of the evolutions of some of the things that we talk about now, I will say that not sponsored by Zoom, but opportunity that Zoom does have is that with the, you know, with the the annotate tool over the top of it, I mean, there there were some things that we were able to do when we're talk- we were talking about a specific space in the lobby. And as you kind of like enter into the lobby, I mean, there was the way that we were working on, you know, a specific space. It was just, it, to me, it wasn't feeling right because we were trying to compress way too much stuff into a, a space. And I was like, well, all of this is extra space that we're giving them that they never really Mm -hmm. asked for. And so now they, they believe that they need it. But what we're ending up doing is we're not giving them, we're not giving them one dynamic space. We're giving them two eh spaces. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't want to give them a space. I want to give them something. And I literally said it that way. I was like, I mean, we're giving them two spaces that are just like, eh, all right. And that's not what we want to do. I know that that's not what I want to do in, and I was like, so do we just say, Hey, we're not going to give you this space because then what you get out of this is this, and this is such a more dramatic space. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, we got to go back to the client and tell them that, you know, they're not going to get these spaces now. like, I would much rather them showing them the path we were going and showing them that the path that we think we should go and let them make the decision. But we have to be very clear on what we're saying. And the, the great thing was, is we were at least able to somewhat sketch over the, the views that we have. But you know, this, this worry about not being able to sit down and do some of that stuff, I'm sure that there's going to be the necessities, of the mother invention. And so there will be more and more interactive tools for these things as we potentially go to a slightly more work at home type situation in many cases, if out of need, or if just out of desire to kind of like Oh, maybe I shouldn't put my truck on the road for two hours a day, you know, every day. And maybe if I just like cut my carbon usage by two thirds and stay at home most of the time and only go in when I need to, Hey, you know, I'm doing, you know, it's a win-win for everything. But in that meantime, how do I convey those ideas? How do I convey that process? How do I convey that, that notion? And I, I think, um, we're sort of there, but uh, well, I we, feel like it's a it's a too much of a disconnect where it's too abstracted. I I don't you don't actually
0: see the pencil or the pen on the piece of paper and how it's being held and right. how the the weight of the thing changes based on how you're holding it. And
1: like, yeah, digital tools are getting better for sure, yeah. but yeah. man, we're losing something too. And also, it's that you know, and I said this in the last show it's just like they're is a lot of the story that's told by somebody's yeah. facial expression. Like, whoa. And cadence. Or just like, and ooh.
0: Yeah. There's so yes. many things about that, that, that I think are gonna.
1: Or, or it's just like, you know, we're all, st- you know, you know, we stop. Like, no, 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 go ahead. You, <laughs> oh, man. you talk. That's, or is that's it, brutal. Yeah. Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, exactly. <laughs> uh, and and so, and, and there's a lot of like that cadence that you're talking about that's lost from from that. And just like, it's okay when you like see somebody who's like, oh, let me grab this piece of paper. And they like grab a piece of paper and they're like, all right, so now we're going to draw and, uh-huh. and we're going to like r- run over the top of it. Just and, hearing that sound and,
0: and, just makes me long for it, that you
1: just shook that piece of paper. <laughs> right. You don't hear that very much. No. Yeah, and, and those are the, the missing things. Now, I will say that, you know, we at least a few guys on the team will take and basically tilt their screen down mm-hmm. and have a, Our you know, like a little there. board yeah. over the top of theirs. And then they'll just like sketch over it and say, well, this is what I was thinking. And, and you know, you can kind mm-hmm. of see it now. You don't necessarily like I can't like grab a piece of trace and throw it over the top of it and like, you know, sketch over it. It's like, but what if you think about this kind right. of thing? Or somebody else, you know, grabbing one and, you know, grabbing a, a pen and scribbling over the top of that and kind of creating this this beautiful tapestry of sketches that anybody who looks at it that isn't in our profession will say, what the hell am I looking yeah. at? But you say, you can see the evolution of a thought, the evolution of the process, and the final solution all in that scribbly yeah. mess. Yeah,
0: it's it's interesting too because then it it kind of transitions from he says we get obsessed with how and we forget why we're doing it uh, and and so you can't just yeah. simply doodle all the time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you got to step back and yeah. and go big picture and and I think you know the the ability of architects is especially special in this piece of the the episode right because it's it is that powers of ten idea of. Zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, like step in, step out and switch modes, be big, be small and be detailed, be just, you know, what's the opposite, (laughs) like loose. Right. And and I think like, that's, what's so interesting about this whole thing is that architects do have a really great ability. And that's why I do think like he's really been trained, even though not formally as an architect, he's been trained as an architect his whole life. He never had to unlearn how to color inside the lines like so many of us did. I've seen stuff on Twitter, right, where, where kids in grade school, and I can't even believe I'm saying this or I'm reading this, is that kids are getting graded based on coloring assignments they're doing at home, because they're not, and they're not coloring in the same direction in all the spaces. And it's that kind of stuff that just breaks my heart. Like, you're, you're coloring wrong. How, how do those words even go in, the right, in that order? that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. you're drawing and right. you're coloring wrong you're not you went outside the lines you used the wrong tone and and to me like that he was seriously lucky to be trained by an artist by not even formal training right just through osmosis mm. but just send me more drawings right like that's what his father yeah. would say just send me more drawings and and the whole exercise of just drawing a doodle and then making something out of that i i've done that as a kid, I've done that as an adult. I've done that with my kids. I, it's I, like, I, make a mark on the page, and then somebody else take it and make another mark. And then what What can you make that into? I think those are such
1: fun, valuable exercises. I, I loved that at, you know, near the end of the episode, he kind of revisited that, you know, notion of the scribble, and then just kind of like he evolved it into a cat, and it was just like... Did I know how to draw a cat? No, but I, you know, I, I <laughs> yeah. saw it. He says you it's, know, you know, it's, abil- just like-
0: it's about the ability
1: to see something. Yeah, exactly. And you look at the initial thing, and it was just the, this very gestural kind of like series of scribbles that evolved into yeah. something else. That, I mean, hell, artists have made, probably after their death, you know, people have made millions off of people who who did just that? Find something in the playful, find something in the exploration, find something, you know, that just like speaks to you and then, you know, let it create, let it create you, you create it. And, I mean, hell, I'm looking at this, uh, um, the Louvre in Abu Dhabi and in a way, even though they're very deliberate forms, but they're so yeah. overlapped. That it looks like that gestural drawing that that he did. Yeah, totally. You can see that Um, if you you blur your eyes enough. (laughs) Uh, You don't even have to blur your eyes. You just see, you know, you just sit there and you see all of the different layering effect, and then you see how the the response of the light as it shines through the roof has, you know, almost created these things. It's like, oh look, I'm like looking at some image right now. And I see, and I'm kind of hyper focused on two beams of light that look like eyes. And they're yeah, not eyes. My kids are but so good at that, like right? Because they me. don't
0: have all of this other stuff that's influenced them their whole life. Like my youngest will just—he can see shapes everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. He sees faces, he sees animals, he sees. And he's not that young; like he's 14, and he still does that.
1: Probably end up drawing. Yeah. Godzilla. he sees Godzilla in more things thing. than most people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is true
0: but but yeah i mean it's that, that awesome. it is the ability to see something and it's funny because people will say how what like they, it just doesn't even compute for them right yeah. i would have never seen that
1: oh yeah but i can connect with him because like he's got such a kind of a an out there brain that he sees this the standard mm-hmm. in a non-standard yeah. way yeah and so like i'll sit there and i'll say check that out and they're like what I'm like Look at the way the sun is hitting that wall. Like, uh-huh. I'm like, well, "But, but look, it's amazing." <laughs> look But what do you see? What do you see there? And they're like, "The sun hitting the wall." I'm like, "But don't you see the, the face?" And they're like, "Look look beyond." Yeah, I was like, as I start to explain what I'm seeing, then they're like, "Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I see it." They might be humoring me, or they might actually see it, or they might like, you know, have to like change their perspective of how they're seeing it to like actually see it, but yeah. My wife is always amazed at how oddly I see yeah, the and world. I
0: think like that 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 also comes up in the episode when Oliver says, you know, when he was just breaking into the art scene and he said, you know he got to I think he said he moved to Germany and he was just like, everybody was amazing. Yeah. How am I gonna yeah. and he said, if I'm gonna somehow say something, I better be myself." And there are so many people today being trained to be just like everybody else all the time. And that, to me, is a is a crime against humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's what, when you say, like, yes. my son sees things differently, and I immediately go to that kind of a quote, and I'm like, okay, so how is he being influenced to be just like everybody else? And how can I stop that? That's the difficult thing.
1: You know, because so many times people are like, why can't this you just a be normal? This is a one-size-fits-all
0: kind of society
1: on many levels. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah totally. And that is a crime. You're like,
1: why can't you just be normal? And it's just like, why do you need to be normal? Yeah.
0: <laughs> There's a really good book. It's a very small book uh, by Seth Godin called We Are All Weird. And it's all about finding your tribe of weirdos. Because turns out you're not the only one who has your weirdness. And you may have different combinations of weird than somebody else, but you share weird with a group of people. And the Internet has made it possible to find those people. And so it's all about just kind of finding your tribe, right? Finding your small group of weird and making stuff for that group and and not trying to be everything to everyone. I think that's really one of the downsides to the whole capitalism and everything is just like you've got to scale and you've got to get it bigger and you've got to have more and you've got to do better than the last time and, and all these things. And, and really, it it it's kind of self-defeating, right? Because that's what really brings out the bland in things. It's like, okay, well, let's just make it more efficient than we did the last time. And let's go slightly better than the last time. And let's go slightly bigger. And we can't go down. We have to go up and shareholders and all these things. And, and it's all about the machine and it's not about the art. It's not about the connectedness. It's and so I think like all of that kind of does I start to go down those paths. And that's the way my brain works is thinking about how can you kind of maintain your point of view and your independence and what makes it different than everybody else's and put that on display and and make the world a better place through that. That to me is A super valuable thing to try to find in your life and why is it so damn hard (laughs) you've got so many of these other things fighting against that makes it really difficult and so i think like when i watch a show like this and i see somebody who has been successful in doing that like he has no direct influence over my life he never has i've never experienced his stuff but when i see into his process and what he's been able to accomplish with it I seriously have the FOMO, right? I feel like this. that's why this fits into the what the hell am I doing with my life category is because he's been so successful yep. at not giving a shit about what you think what he should be doing. It is It is seriously about self-expression and he has honed that over the years to make valuable experiences for other people. But that to me is where he really does stand apart from so many others. It's a, it's a joy to watch that kind of thing. And I love it. Like you, he walked into one of his studios and <laughs> studios, plural, right? He's got one in Iceland. He's got one in Berlin and who knows where else, but he, he he says something doesn't have to be successful in order to be quality.
1: Oh, thank you. I totally wrote that <laughs> and, down. Too. And when
0: yes. he's saying that he's walking into his studio and there's this big framed thing over the doorway where he walks into the studio and they didn't point it out, but it's there. And it just says,
1: take your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's one of those uh like I said, I am glad I watched it and fast forwarded through the, the I guess perception changing narratives that I had at mm-hmm. the very beginning. Because when I came to it with my own kind of perception, it was exactly what the intent of hit not only the episode, maybe, maybe not, but at least his artwork is come into it with your own perception, with your own experience. You know, be spatially aware of you and don't worry about what other people say. I guess that's kind of one of the <laughs> weirdly, I kind of likened that narration to how people kind of like deem who is a architect and who is just an architect <laughs> is, you know, kind of through this perception of like, what is great and what is not. And we all kind of like sit around and lament about, ah, oh, Sure, I could have done that if I had the budget to do it, Mm -hmm. kind of like attitude. And maybe yes, maybe no. But who are we to crown, you know, somebody greater than another? And I I think that's always some of the turnoffs to me is like, yeah, yeah, you might be great, but are you? Yeah. Are you really? And I just, I was like, let me be the judge of what is good and bad because, and it's only judging for myself. It's not me running out and saying, hey, Evan. See this guy right here? He's great. And you should think that he's great too, because Mm -hmm. I think he's great. And you're like, I think he's shit. (laughs) And I don't know why you're telling me that he's great. And so, or yeah, he's great, but he's great because not because of what, why you think he's great. I think he's great because of Mm -hmm. why I think he's great. And that is actually probably a little bit more of, you know, something that I would find a little bit more acceptable. And like I said, I, I seem to be a little bit, pessimistic on people's views of what is great and what isn't. I was like, just let everybody else figure Mm -hmm. it out themselves. And so it kind of runs back to the, you know, the Seth Godin book of like, Mm -hmm. we're all weird. Let our let's find our own, what we find enjoyable. It was a really enjoyable thing to watch. I absolutely loved it. And I'm kind of glad because now I have to like, I think I'm going to watch it again for, for sure. I think I need to, wrap up my eldest and sit down with him because, you know, I think these are kind of the distractions that he needs right now. Cause you know, he's just, he, he finished his first year of college. Dang. Yeah. Crazy. And, uh, it has been very stressful for him and kind of almost a little bit disillusioned by the whole experience. Cause you know, he's like, I was kind of hoping that college would be something that I can expand my mind and not, just expand the same concept of people telling me what is right and wrong and let me try to figure it out for myself. And and (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) I was just like, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think it's so, you know, apropos to like what we've been talking about, but just also it's like, you know, there are times when you're going to have to almost accept, you know, the constraints that people put on you but then there's, you know, times where you can buck and fight those constraints. It wasn't until
0: third year of architecture school for me where it actually clicked and I actually had that change in point of view. And and I think, you know, if it's any consolation for him is that some of these things do take time. You kind of have to get through some of the muck to get to the good stuff.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that's just the, the hard challenge. And obviously, you know, as a parent, it's the hard thing to do is like, Sometimes you've got to trudge through. Sometimes, you know, you've got to like fight in the trenches to understand why the trenches might not be for you. Well, and the
0: instant gratification (laughs) is real.
1: Like people want it.
0: And and the delayed gratification is where the real fruit is. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell people to wait, but sometimes you got to wait. Sometimes you got to wait hope that maybe if you guys watch that together and you could just talk about these ideas and that would be neat to kind of see how he takes that and what he does with it. If, if anything, yeah. no, absolutely. But that would be, that'd be kind of neat.
1: And it's just like one of those things that, you know, he may not like, it may not like kick action in right. now, but it may be something that, you know, like my use of the powers of 10 when, you know, I was forced to watch it the first day of my first year of college, I was like, the hell are you showing me this for but then as time went on I'm like ah, I get it I understand why you want me to see this and you know it only really really took me to kind of like have other people you know first have that you know that experience in the profession of stepping back and looking at the bigger picture and all this other stuff and then trying to ask and explain to other people to do Mm -hmm. the same thing and try to explain to them the reason why and it took years, decades, it seems, to to get that you know full kind of comprehension and, and kind of appreciation for it. And so it may not hit him now, or it may be the, exactly what he might need to hear. Who knows? It's his own perception of space. Individual. All right, man. Well, until next time. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Thanks. This was a good...
0: All right, that might be all for this episode, but maybe listen to the end just in case. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. See all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and don't forget to share it with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.
2: This is what you get. This is a schedule, this is a set. It's unpredictable, as you forget. If you flow, you can bet. I know, I know, I know. This is what you get. This is a schedule, this is a set. It's unpredictable, as you forget. If you flow, you can bet, I know, I know, I know. This is what you get This is the schedule This is the set It's so predictable As you forget Every flow you can back I know, I know
0: check out that thing i just retweeted you gotta watch it
1: oh hey hey yo i mean when it starts off with uh you know top guns music and yes <laughs> nothing wrong with kenny loggins <laughs> <clears throat> no just you know
0: yeah it's well it's you got to watch it with the sound on too because oh yeah it was it was playing because like the lyrics sync up with what's going on i
1: mean it's it's really (laughs) it's pretty cool man as i sit here and stare at my little uh pop figures of han solo and darth vader nice nice my i have pops pop figures of my top three star wars characters Probably
0: good to just keep it in top three, otherwise you'd
1: have a lot of those things. Yeah. No, I did. I did, however, buy my uh, my wife her top one um, Star Wars pop figure, um, which took a very long time to get. Which one's that? I bought it. Chewbacca? <clears throat> I bought it. bought it for Christmas of last year, and it didn't show up until basically start of, like, just because it. I guess it was pre-orders or whatever uh uh-huh. baby yoda oh
0: <laughs> a new a newly created favorite a newly created favorite wow she was just like it's so damn cute yeah and so there's know. there's a whole uh documentary now like how they made the mandalorian on disney plus i haven't watched it but
1: yeah it's good it's a it's it's actually a series now oh okay um, first two episodes are out they've got the one the first one was the director's I'm um, talking about the directors and kind of like their inspiration and how the whole thing got started. And yeah, John Favreau's kind of involvement is creative director and producer. And, and then God, what is his name? Baloney. I can't remember his first name, Uh, but he's, you know, one of the kind of also, you know, co creative director, kind of the visionary he's worked with George Lucas and sort of understands like the process of like character building and everything else. Mm hmm. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's good and it's engaging. And then they actually start to get into second one was um, a little bit more like character driven talking about like the evolution of these new characters and their add to the thing. And then kind of how they just through certain little things, whether they're stories from the books or like in envisioned like, okay, while that was going on, this was going on Mm. kind of thing. And, you know, it's just, it is kind of cool because I did, I've, since, you know, the, the last trilogy had finished up, I went and I, I read a bunch of the books, basically just like all of the different Sith type books. And they have all of these interesting, like, you know, side characters and stuff. I'm like, damn, this would make a great movie. Damn, this would make a great movie. Yeah, I'm sure they will. <laughs> <laughs> the early evolution of Vader, you know, cause the problem is, is that like, you know, they've got the, the first, you know, the, the episodes 1 through 3 where you know they did okay with episode 3 of that trilogy mm-hmm. you know it was kind of that evolution of Vader but you almost instantly for me instantly fell in love with Vader from day 1 when when Star Wars came out
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you're like oh wow this was fantastic you know this is a great you know like you didn't really need to know his backstory you just knew that you know dude was a badass and you should fear him and then they did the first Trilogy, or the the first three episodes, and you're just like, Vader's a bitch. I want to <laughs> slap him in his face, <laughs> you know. And you're just like, why did they? I didn't. They ru- they almost ruined almost ruined Vader for me because he was a whiny little bitch. <laughs> 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 because Anakin Skywalker, I didn't need to know Anakin Skywalkers if they were going to play Anakin Skywalker, you know, more or less like they did Luke Skywalker and. In the true episode one, actual Star Wars. <laughs> Tell me how you feel. Then, then I really didn't need to. I didn't need to see it. I didn't need to see. You know, like oh, we already knew that Luke was a little bit of you know, a little bit of a whiny bitch. Didn't need to know that Anakin was a, a whiny bitch too. It was like well, I, got, I wanted. Yeah, you got to see where it came from, man. <laughs> I, I wanted to know the evolution of how he became. You know, like the yeah, the galaxy's badass, right? And so the, the, there was, prior to Rogue One, in that beautiful last scene in Rogue One where they kind of showed, I, I guess, like the new version of Jedi's, you know, specifically like since Kylo Ren, you know, kind of like stopped ray gun bolts and all that other stuff in the air yeah. and, and kind of like stopped every, you know, almost like stopped time within that particular, like realm and stuff and you're just like yeah and then and so like you know having vader kind of like overlay that new technology of what a jedi is with you know old school vader yeah was absolutely just perfect yeah and then you know they also had the rebels cartoon that they had on uh i, I guess now it's um disney plus but right before that it was on one of Disney's you know like little spin off channels that they had on just normal cable, and so they had that, and it was it was just fantastic because you know they they kind of showed the Vader that you wanted to see you know, and they didn't show a lot of him, but you know when they showed him they showed him as as quite quite the badass and that's you know what we've grown to know and love of Vader is oh he's the world's badass, sure at the end of you he know, he kind of grew a heart and it you know, went from Grinch to, you know, the good Grinch, from bad Grinch to good Grinch. <laughs> um, but I never really wanted to know the story of the Grinch before the Grinch. I just wanted to know the Grinch was bad. Then he had a little bit of redeeming qualities. He came good, but he was still sort of Grinch. And if he if he became Grandpa Grinch, you know, sitting at the retirement home, and if somebody, like, really pissed him off, he could, you know, like, snap and give, go back to bad Grinch. It was kind of what they needed to leave Vader right there. Leave him alone. Don't do anything unless you're going to come out and just do like, uh, in these books basically because he's kind of like the, I'm going to go down a little rabbit hole of nerdom, but you know, he's like the lapdog of the emperor and, you know, basically does, uh, the emperor's bidding. Cause he knows that at right at this point in time, he's already gone down the road of, well, there's no turning back. You know, my friends aren't going to accept me and, and, uh, cause I've already like killed half of them, <laughs> if not more of them. So, you know, I mean, at that point in time, the emperor is stronger than he is, even though they always show him as kind of like this meek and feeble kind of guy, but he really isn't that, you know, he's not ready to like take the mantle from the emperor, uh, which you, know, you can contend that he never was cause he still had too much goodness. But like that, that whole story arc that they talk about, you know, and how kind of, like, they just hear these whispers throughout the galaxy of this Lord Vader, Lord Vader, Lord Vader. And then they like see him in action and they're like, Oh shit. Stories don't even remotely do him justice. Those are the stories I want to see. Yeah. I want to want to see the John, John wing Vader story. <laughs> you know, damn, somebody oh, killed Vader's puppy. That's not good for the kids. Look for the kids. People took their kids to go see Deadpool. Yeah. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> Some people I don't know if you Look, did
0: but it wasn't me. No well, way.
1: When Deadpool came out, my kids were like 16 and they they kind of broke me down and I was like, "Okay, you you can go, but I'm slight protest here, but I'm still going to like take you." And I took them and I'm like, "Damn, I wish I didn't take them." Mhm. Yeah. And, you you know, got to go watch only, it first, dude. I only <laughs> took I only took the teen boys. You yeah. Know? You know, and of course my daughter's never seen it in nor like do I want her to see it? Yeah. Talk about like in the pegging scene where you're just like, Oh damn, this is not the kind of movie I want to sit with my child and him just like watch two people go at it. You're like, mm, Nope, Nope, Nope. But in turn, their kids like ages three on up I'm, in that movie theater. I'm always surprised like, by that. What the <clears throat> hell? Yeah. it's crazy. Ages ago, we went and we saw a uh, blade and Blade wasn't, you know, like... I can't remember that four. far back in history. Yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't as bad, you know, it wasn't as... I mean, the violence no, was there. No, of course there, not. But, I mean, the, the violence like, has gotten much more technical. Oh, it's... <laughs> it, yes. There's a... Um, Rochelle and I watched the new Rambo movie. Oh, yeah. And, oh, my Lord. You know, at first you're just like, uh, okay, is this going to be... Essentially be a... What you think it is. it's it's a it's a rambo movie it's a rambo movie and you're like okay where is this going and it started off a little slow and then it just like intensified both in action and violence and the violence was like today's violence yeah but with a beloved you know violent character from your past yeah (laughs) and you're just like whoa 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 simmer down now i mean Go get a cup of coffee and just like relax there, Grandpa. It's, I mean, it's you don't have- totally because everybody's
0: become so desensitized to it. I Jesse and I spent a lot of time just going away from all that stuff, and and that's all. It, that's what it takes. It takes time. Like you just can't yeah. watch it yeah. And now if if there's anything like that, I'm I'm very uncomfortable with it. And it and it's amazing how you actually can get back to that place where you are sensitive to it again, and like what you're talking about with these trends towards today's violence you know is like the nicest (laughs) way you could say it like it's crazy it's absolutely crazy and it's really hard to find stuff to be entertained by on tv that isn't full of either that or language or like what's the deal with um with movies that have to have like the most rotten teenagers in them and and like that's what we have in the house (laughs) and do i want them looking at that Hell right. no. It's
1: like, oh, they can act like that?
0: <laughs> so can I. Hell no. Because it is amazing to me how nowadays, uh like the people that kids aspire to be, number one, they're like athletes, they're YouTubers, like YouTube stars. They're they're the people that we're talking about right now. They're the ones who come right. onto these shows or who are the stars of these shows and are getting right. All of this stuff is written for them to do. Like this isn't normal human behavior. And this is what the kids watch. And I shouldn't say it's always like what they're, they're, it's not written for them in the YouTube sense. Like they're writing it, but they're writing it from like a, because they have to push what they did the last time further. And so it's this escalation that kids watch. And they're like, that's who I want to be when I grow up. And that to me is kind of disheartening, right? Because it's not about, community it's about one-upmanship and it's not about like making the world better it's about getting the most clicks it's it's like that kind of stuff that really frightens me as a parent and, yeah. and you you try to watch something on on tv and entertainment and like seriously we just go back to the old star trek <laughs> or we watch the old star wars movies or we're watching yeah. uh, lost in space like it's a story about a family in space who's you know and it's a really it's well done but those I'm are assuming, hard to are come you by watching the old Lost in Space or the new Lost? No, Space? I don't even. I don't even. We we looked for the the old one and we couldn't find it. So I don't know if it's out now, but uh, when we looked, it wasn't available.
1: But we're watching the new one, or we we have finished it actually. Because I grew up on the old one. Yeah, you know I had older sisters, and so like you know we watched like all of the reruns. You know, it's it's funny as we kind of like went through the mental Rolodex of like the what were like the the big I don't know four shows that you can remember from your you know, your childhood and got like Bewitched, I Dream of genie, Land of the Lost. Uh, We're going to try to find Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, Gilligan's Island is on, uh, you can find it. We bought a Roku TV. Yeah. Yeah, because we just, we, we needed to replace a TV and like the cheapest one came with Roku and I'm like, wait, yeah, ours this is actually not bad. But so like Roku has got like all of these like free channels. Oh yeah, right. And some of them show like all of, you know, it's like Bonanza and all of those other ones. Right. And you're just like, whoa, these are, you know, it's cool that they're there and it's cool. And then you go back and you rewatch them. And I'm like, I'm leaving these in my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my memory of them is better than they exactly. actually were. <laughs> because I will tell you that I was a massive fan back in the day of Land of the Lost. Yeah. If you go back and you watch Land of the Lost right now mm. and you're like, a little disappointing. <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> and even like the remake, which, you know, sort of pokes fun at it with uh, um, Will, am I blanking on his name, from SNL. Oh, Will uh, Ferrell? Very, Will Ferrell, thank you. Wow. Is that really that hard to remember, apparently? <laughs> <laughs> Seems so. <laughs> um, but even that one sort of like pokes fun at it in a way, but of course, you know, with much better graphics and and CGI and, and the Slea Stacks, you know, like Slea were my jam, man. I loved like the Slea Stacks and used to draw the Slea Stacks all the time. And then the newer Slea Stacks were like, ah, oh, these are great. But you go back and you like watch it and you're like, oh, yeah, man. yeah. Um, and then, of course, we kind of fell down a rabbit hole of like, what are some of the other TV shows? And my wife's like, oh, you remember Great Space Coaster. <laughs> and so you like, you pull out the Great Space Coaster. And of course, you've got to start with. The opening song, yeah, you know, and then and then go through that, and then by the time like ten to twenty seconds of just the opening title like clicks by, kids are like, "I'm out."
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that won't even give it a shot.
1: <laughs> My daughter is completely creeped out by the puppet. She's it's not a big puppet fan. She was never a Muppet or a. Sesame Street Street kind of, you know, she was never a big fan of any of those. And so funny enough, like, you know, when she does her like little crafts and she does these great like sculptures out of like the, this puffy clay that she's got. Yeah. And they look kind of like some of those, you know, but in a slightly creepier way, just because of how she makes them. And you're just like, how do you not like watching this, but you make these? (laughs) Yeah. There is no there is no connection <laughs> does between not the compute. two.
0: <laughs> there was some cool Twitter threads going around about like top five uh, TV theme songs from your youth, you know, and it was stuff like Family Ties and Growing Pains and stuff like that. And I was just thinking like, oh, like Three's Company, Gilligan's Island, yeah. uh, The yeah. A-Team, Magnum P.I. My mom and I used to like watch, we, we would have like our own date to watch A-Team every week or Magnum P.I. And it was... Because no nobody ever died in
1: those shows. <laughs> but there was lots of machine guns <laughs> the The best, the one of the ones that I can still remember the words and in, in the other day, um, probably halfway into you know where we're at right now, I hunted down and watched the pilot episode, which was actually a, it was a two hour pilot. And it was a lot darker than the actual um, series, and it didn't have the the title song. Mm. but then like every other one after that had the title song it's like they just greatest weren't ready american in time or what oh yeah that. greatest american hero yep, man i remember that Burial. that was amazing because they had like they had the music but yep. they didn't have the lyrics uh, <laughs> wow
0: maybe they just didn't want to spend money on that in the pilot yet because they didn't know if the show they was gonna to make, to make it.
1: sure oh it, well, yeah they <laughs> wanted to make sure if it was gonna stick or not that they,
0: show was so good I remember that when I was, I was maybe five or six when that came out and we used to like go to the babysitter's house when my parents would go out and that's the first time I ever remember watching that show. And it was so like, it just drew me in, you know, a normal guy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Superpowers. Like that was the first time that
1: had ever like come into my, into my life. I'd forgotten like how he got his superpowers. Oh, I don't remember. I knew it came, I knew it came from the suit. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it came from the suit, but the suit was given to them by aliens. Okay. And the aliens came to them in a form of, like, uh, Robert Culp, who was the FBI agent right, right. Um, that worked Sidekick. with him. Yep. The pilot, clearly I do not remember watching the pilot, because the pilot had, like, this, almost like this group that was this white supremacist group <laughs> that... And that they were trying to take over the government and infiltrate the government. And so they had control over the vice president and all of this other stuff. And I'm just like, I don't remember this, but holy crap. It's, it feels like it's coming true now. (laughs) Like all we really need now is some alien to come down and say, Mr. Troxel, here is a suit for you. Go and save the world.
0: Learn how to fly, dude. (laughs) So good i have the hair for it right now too by the way yeah. i totally have hair. The, there you go
1: see the giant hair. and so the and i found out the reason why he was having to learn how to like figure out all of the things that the suit can do with him yeah is because in the pilot episode he lost the instructions
0: oh that's right uh, that
1: was that was a key ingredient the, the, the instructions actually came with the book with the with the box yeah,
0: of it was, suit. Yeah. It was like it was like an actual box that he opened up. Yep. <laughs> and the, yep, there was yep. a folded up
1: super suit in there. <laughs> exactly. It was with a cape and everything. You you should go and find it and watch. I it. need to. It's just like it's it's you got to watch it. You've got to find it 81. Oh, it was I was 11. I was 6. My my hearkening back was correct for once. So what's funny is is that you were your perception of that was completely different than my perception because I had five more years of yeah, worldly totally. experience. Yeah. Than yeah I you mean did. I was in
0: what first grade. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally different. Yeah. I found uh on on Amazon they showed the pilot the video is currently unavailable,
1: but uh hour and thirty five minutes. So if you look through like Roku yeah I'll you'd be surprised that I think you'd find it somewhere in there it was it was on something and it sure was free for what I watched because i I wasn't going to pay for it but <laughs> you know it's just like ooh, a childhood memory, right right Rent it for 3 ninety nine yeah no, it can live in my memory <laughs> right' <laughs> it's just like, what is the price tag on childhood memories right <laughs> very low. <laughs> very, very. So like, yeah, I don't really think I want to watch that one. But oh, man, I remember. Uh, I would say that my first childhood crush was probably Jeannie. Oh yeah, yeah, Genie. Yeah. I'm I'm looking right here at um
0: the greatest American hero, and I I think I had a crush on her too, or maybe it
1: was in uh, Mindy from and Mindy. <laughs> God, I remember all those shows too. It was just so. And then you know we were looking at other puppet like related TV shows from the 70s that you definitely know the producers and the creators were high as a kite <laughs> when not only <laughs> they pitched it but they directed it come on HR oh, puffin oh, stuff really oh man HR puffin H. stuff H- do you do you <laughs> <laughs> I mean they <sighs> they, they Somehow, some way that got past everybody and people are like, Hey, sure. I don't know what all of this means, but his name's HR and you know, his last name's puff and stuff. And that sounds very British. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm trying to figure out what the heck
0: there must be a meaning behind the symbol, the alien symbol on the front of the suit. Oh yeah, but I I guess I'd have to rewatch the (laughs) whole series to figure it out.
1: (laughs) Oh, such a good song! Really want to go through that. I just it's just playing in my head right now. So good. (laughs) Yeah. So when it came on, the pilot came on, and that's when we realized it didn't have the lyrics because the music came on, and my wife and I started singing it, and of course, you know, my daughter's like. The heck's wrong with you 2 <laughs> uh,
0: There's not even—they're not even singing.
1: They're not even singing. And but we're you singing guys
0: somehow—this is like this is like one of those musicals where all of a sudden, all of the different families who are fighting with each other know the words to the same song. And they exactly. Start singing it, and it was totally ingrained in our head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. It looks like uh, <clears throat> on IMDb there's some news of a potential reboot.
1: Yeah, I keep hearing about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because there are we are officially out of new ideas. That's why.
1: Yeah, that's kind of depressing.